Good morning, everyone. If I've got, not gotten the chance to meet you yet, my name is Bryce, and I'm an intern here at Fountain Square. And if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, I'd love to meet you after the service as well. I want to start by telling you about the first time I got my look, my first look at power. I was six years old, and I vacationed in Washington, D.C. with my family. And we spent the day looking at the monuments, the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, and all these beautiful historic places. Then as we were walking along one of the streets, my dad said, look who's coming down the street. And I turned around, and I saw a motorcade of limousines. Now, I grew up on a small farm in Indiana, so the limousine was the coolest car ever, and there was a bunch of them. So the limousines are pulling down, surrounded by a motorcade, and I see one of the windows is rolled down about halfway, and I see the President of the United States is waving as he passed by. And as I see all these amazing cars drive by, I think, wow, that is power. I was blown away. That was the President, that's the leader of our country, and I was 30 feet away. Now, you may also know that I am part of a large family, and pretty soon after this vacation, our six, my sixth sibling, our sixth child, came along, and we had to upgrade from our family's Astro van to a larger 15-passenger van. And I saw this new-to-us van that was a lot longer than the other one, and I thought, wow, we are going places. <laughs> If we just paint this van black and just lower that ceiling a little bit, we will be such a powerful, cool family. Because that was my view of power. So I'm curious, I want you to think about, what do you think of when you hear the word power? Do you think of a bodybuilder with a lot of physical strength? Do you think of a political leader? There's all sorts of images that come to mind. But often when we think of human power, it can feel like power is reserved for those who are rich, for those who are business owners, for YouTube influencers, those who are in very different categories of life than we are. Now, this disparity of power can be even worse in other countries that are run by a more dictatorial government as well. Now this word power can leave a bad taste in our mouth when we see people misuse power. But the truth is we all have power. We have the ability to move, to speak, to assert influence, and to lead. And this power that all of us have is morally neutral. It can be used for good or it can be used in bad ways. As we think about power in our own lives, Power can still be a really difficult concept because I can almost guarantee that each and every one of us have had people misuse power against us. But as we continue to think about power and we think about our own relationship with power, we can actually misuse power to serve our own ends as well and try to influence people for our own ends. Now, throughout this familiar Old Testament story, we'll, we will be asking this question. How do we use power? We'll explore three groups of characters in this story and see how people model uses of power. 
So as we study these three groups of characters in the story, look for these uses of power. Number one, we can misuse power to build ourselves up. Two, we can misuse power to tear others down. And three, we can trust in God's power. So if you have the bulletin or your Bible there, I invite you to look at verse one as we look at our first character, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is misusing power to build himself up. In verse one, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his breadth six cubits. Now, if the dimensions we're given here are correct or if they're accurate, this object is nine feet wide and 90 feet high. That would be the same as a blue whale from tail to nose standing. And this was roughly 25, 2600 years ago. So this would be a marvel of architecture. We're not told if the statue is an image of King Nebuchadnezzar or likely of one of his gods. However, we have a clue that the statue, regardless of what it looks like, still points to Nebuchadnezzar because it's made of gold, or at least is cast or is um, covered on the outside entirely of gold. Now, why does that stand or point to Nebuchadnezzar? If we looked back one chapter at Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue made of several different kinds of metal. Actually, on page 12 of your bulletin, I've included an image of what uh, many scholars believe this image would have looked like. In the dream, the statue is destroyed by a large rock carved without human hands. The king knows that this is a vision, and he seeks, what does this mean? And Daniel, one of his advisors, is able to interpret the dream for the king. And he says that each metal part of the statue stands for a succeeding kingdom. The golden head of the statue stands for Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Each of the succeeding metals underneath in the statue stand for kingdoms that will later replace the king of Babylon's empire and will continue to succeed him. And then finally, the stone that comes and brings the entire statue down stands for the kingdom of God that will replace all earthly kingdoms. Now, at the end, after Daniel has revealed the meaning of this message, Nebuchadnezzar praises God and promotes Daniel, thanking him for interpreting this dream. But right now, the first verse of the very next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue entirely of gold. That's the medal that stands for his own kingdom. Now, this structure could be a direct rejection of the narrative given by God. He sets up a statue proclaiming the might of only one kingdom, his own. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, to be fair, has a lot to boast about. He, Babylon, at this time, is a world superpower. It covers basically all of the Fertile Crescent, so it would have been modern-day Iraq and Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. He has also recently conquered the kingdom of Judah, and he took captive Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and forced them to serve in his court. So he has expanded recently as well. 
Also, the capital city of Babylon is kind of a marvel to behold at this time as well. Um, later in the book of Daniel, we read that the walls that would have protected the city were thick enough potentially to drive a chariot across the top of the walls. So it would have been a near impregnable city when it comes to a full army trying to attack this city. And now the king has built this statue, this monument to his own power. He summons all of the leaders of the empire and he tells them to fall on their face before this new creation. If they don't, they will be killed immediately. No pressure. Now, who do we see in our own day who uses power to build themselves up? Thinking more on a world leadership level, I reflect on the actions of President Putin in Russia and the war with Ukraine. In February of this year, BBC News published an article tracking the words of the Russian president over the course of the war that started last year. Now, President Putin first insisted that he wished to ensure the neutrality of Ukraine from NATO and expressed a desire to protect the people of Ukraine. However, as a year of warfare and firing often on civilians ensued, it became clear that actions and words were not lining up very well. Then a year into the war, last February, Putin declared that he wished to defend Russia's historical frontiers, implying that Ukraine historically belonged to Russia and denying Ukrainian independence. So he essentially ends up admitting that the desire to expand or to reclaim the power for his own country. His power ended up becoming a means to his own ends rather than putting the people of Ukraine first or even serving his own people. Now we can think about these types of actions that happen on a world level of various different leaders but then as we come to a more local level, we can actually find self-aggrandizing people in our own lives as well. We can think about there can be administrators who pass new policies that everyone has to follow, and some of the policies were created without consulting the employees who have to live up to them. And it can make jobs incredibly more hard, incredibly more difficult in ways that administrators just didn't even realize. We can also even see in friendships, there are times that relationships can become one-sided, where someone is taking regularly, but not giving back very much. And that can become really frustrating and difficult. Now, if we're honest though, we can also start to use power to build ourselves up as well. One outlet that I think of that can be, feel very innocent is actually on social media. When we're uploading a new post, often what we wanna do is show what's going well in our lives. And what we can start to do is try to edit, edit out all the messiness, whether that's messiness in our homes or even messiness in our own hearts. Now, of course, I'm not advocating, please broadcast all of your junk on social media. I'm not saying that. Uh, but when we start to try to curate this image and tell people, this is all of me, we can start to set up false expectations. Now, if you were here last week for Lee Hinkle's sermon that covered the idea of shame, he shared that we can use power to hide aspects of ourselves that we're ashamed of. And what we can end up doing is cutting people out of our lives, even those closest to us, from what we struggle with. And the result can be we become an island to ourselves. We cut ourselves off from the ability to be fully known and loved. Now, here's another obstacle that happens. We end up setting people up to rely on us on ways that we can't handle. 
Now, if people only see our ideal self all of the time, they will either pull away from us feeling less than, feeling inferior, or they will look to us as the model example of what to do, which I'll confess is too much. I cannot handle that. Um, But scripture shows that we are meant to build one another up. Relationships are meant to be a two-way street where both of us are giving and receiving grace. Now, this reciprocal use of power ends up energizing both people rather than draining the supposed stronger person and demeaning the other. We admit both our strengths and our shortcomings, and we use our God-given power to humbly serve each other. Now, on the other hand, when we make a name for ourselves, what we end up doing is undercutting God's design for humble relationships, and we can end up seeking to one-up each other to feel better about ourselves. Now, this temptation brings us to our second group of characters in the story, the king's advisors, as they misuse power to tear others down. Now, we read Nebuchadnezzar has built this statue to aggrandize himself, and he coerces every leader in his kingdom, in his empire, and says, get on your face or die. Now, in verse 7, we read that as soon as the music starts, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. That is, all peoples, except for three. But I find it interesting here that it isn't the king scanning over the crowd who notices, oh, what, what are those three people doing over there standing up? He's not the one who notices. The king's advisors take it upon themselves to draw attention to these three figures who are not bowing down before the statue. If you look in verse 12, it says here, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I'm curious, what inspired them to share this report? Are these men just faithful witnesses protecting the king from potential rebels? Verse 8 tells us no. Verse 8 shows us that they maliciously accused the Jews. Why? Now, in this text, we have some evidence that their accusation might be motivated by ethnicity. The advisors are Chaldeans, which means people who are native to Babylon. Now, in contrast, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are Jews from the recently conquered kingdom of Judah. And now the advisors are coming to the king and they point out there are certain Jews who pay no attention to you. The ethnic disparity is spotlighted to malign them as foreigners and potential rabble-rousers who are fighting against the king. O king, shouldn't these men be silenced? A second potential motivator is jealousy. Twice already in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have received favor personally from the king and have been promoted by him. So imagine this. In Daniel chapter 1, we learn that when Nebuchadnezzar conquers a kingdom, what he does is he seeks out people who are conquered. And he goes to the noble families and takes young men from the noble families. What he's doing is he's looking for the best, the brightest, the strongest, the most intelligent, the most good-looking to say, Those who have the best knowledge, I'm going to add them to my advisory team. And he would assign them a tutor who would teach them the Babylonian language and the culture. And then the king would personally interview 
all of these new people who have been trained and bring the best and brightest on, into his court. Now, this would be a really brilliant way to diversify the points of view on your advisory team if it wasn't completely brutal and inhuman to take people away in this way. Now, the king personally questioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he declares these men are 10 times wiser than anyone else on my, any of my advisors. Now, if you grew up in Babylon, are a full citizen, and are familiar with the language, and you worked for years, potentially decades, to reach the position where you're at in the court, and all of a sudden, captives from another kingdom who are potentially still learning the language are declared 10 times better than you? How would you feel? Jealous? A little bitter? Vengeful? Now, these favored ones of the king defy a direct command of the king and, and on the grounds of, oh, in our country, we don't worship other gods like that. The Babylonian advisors see an opportunity. Oh, king, didn't you say anyone who doesn't bow down should die? Look at these men. They pay no attention to you. They seize the opportunity to accuse and tear down these men who seek to honor God above every earthly king. Now, it's, it's kind of sad to say, I can see a lot of examples in our world today where one person tears down another. An example I saw in a movie that came out recently over this last Christmas is a movie called Spirited. You might have seen it. It has Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds in it. This movie is a modern take on the Christmas Carol. And in this movie, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future decide to find another person, kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge, who they can change for the better. And they choose a CEO of a company named Clint. Now, Clint's company is all about promoting someone's business. But what he does is, after someone has hired him for an exorbitant amount of money that he charges, what he does is he tears down all the other companies by hiring his team to dig up dirt on every other company that's in the same field. That way people will see the dirt that he exposes, um, usually through social media, and will tear down the other companies so people will boycott those companies and only pay his customers. Now the tension in the story escalates because his middle school niece comes to him and says, you're a great leader. I want to become president of the student council at my middle school. Will you help me? And Clint decides, I can help with this. My brilliant plan is to dig up dirt on the other middle school kid who is running for student council president. And after finding a kid who really is super kind and charitable, he finds one rude video that was posted years ago and then was deleted but he was able to find the trail. He decides the brilliant plan is to broadcast this one root video all over social media, and all the friends of this kid instantly cancel him. The movie goes on to show some of the devastating effects that can come from tearing someone down in order to build yourself up. Now, I wonder, as I look across all sorts of comments, comments sections often, there's a lot of tearing down that we can see pretty easily if we just look there. And I wonder, why are we motivated to tear other people down? 
Now, one thing that I think that happens is that when we feel one-upped by another person, we can feel less bad if we can point out a flaw in the other person. So to deal with our own shame, we drag others down and throw them in the mud as if to say, you're no better than me. This can be if we have someone who feels a lot more, let's say, fashion-forward than us, and we can say, can start to feel bad, but say, that person's so vain, and they waste so much money. And we just kind of assume. Or if someone starts clocking out of work consistently earlier than we clock out of work, we can say, that person has no work ethic. Without even really thinking about or asking about why they're clocking out early, it's easy to jump to that assumption. Now, why do we do this to each other? My guess is that we realize that we don't have enough power to protect ourselves from those with more power. So if we can diminish others' power, we'll be safe. But this is always a losing game because there are always people who are stronger or faster or smarter than we are. So kind of sitting in that reality, where do we find our hope and our protection? Now, this brings us to our third group of characters, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they trust in God's power. Now, they, this trust in a higher power, these three men show to us. They stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, who is threatening to end their lives. Now, if anyone in this story should be, be, feel threatened by greater human power, it's these three men. Now, they're standing before this furious king who has successfully pillaged their homeland and says, obey me or I will end your life. And who is the God who can stop me from ending you? As terrified as these men must be, they have an answer for the king. Look in verse 17. It says here, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They are fully confident that the God who spared them during the invasion of their home can save them from the king's wrath once again. However, it's interesting. They continue here in verse 18. It says, but if not, meaning if we actually die, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. No matter what the outcome, deliverance or death, they have chosen who to serve and they will not change their allegiance. Now, note the power of these three men as they're speaking to a king who is a world superpower. They're not using their power to build themselves up. Wait a minute, remember you said that we were 10 times wiser? Don't listen to these other advisors, listen to us. You shouldn't do this. They also don't tear down the king, saying, oh foolish king, that is just a statue. You're an idiot for teaching this. You need to listen to us, this is, this is foolishness. They don't use power in either way. Instead, they speak and use their influence as advisors to point and trust confidently in God's power. The king becomes unglued. He orders, bind these men, which again is taking away power from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They now can't even move. He commands that the furnace, which is likely, excuse me, likely a large brick kiln, to be heated far above its normal temperature. In fact, it's so hot that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are pushed 
to their deaths, the executioners die from the heat. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really care about that. Instead, he sees that his power has triumphed, and he silenced the dissenters who have spoken to him. He's won. Then he stands up from his chair. He looks, and he begins counting. He checks in with his advisors. We threw in three people, right? True, king. But then he says, but I see four men, not dying, but walking around. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, we don't hear what the distinguishing markers are, but other than sharing in the miraculous survival, this fourth being is different. And King Nebuchadnezzar instantly realizes he is in the presence of something far more powerful than any power that he possesses. So he calls to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out! And the three men walk out of this inferno. There are no burns. There are no scorch marks on their clothes. They don't even smell like smoke. Interestingly enough, I find that last detail the most interesting. If someone is throwing a backyard party and there's a fire pit anywhere on the premises, if I spend five minutes outside, I smell like smoke the rest of the night. Their clothes don't even have the smell of smoke on it. And they walk out up to the king. And this arrogant world leader who builds a monument to his own name declares humbly, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivers his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, who yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. He admits that God is greater than himself and acknowledges the king that is above every king. Now, this story is a testament of triumph and hope. And we see God's power. The same God who saved these three men from the wrath of the king of Babylon, he still moves in our lives today to save us from the prince of this world. In the Old Testament, also in the New Testament, and now, God is always working to powerfully save his people. Now, while this story is beautiful and filled with victory, I have to admit, I often feel disconnected from this story. I can read through it and think, oh, this is a great story I heard in Sunday school. Isn't it wonderful God moved to save these three men? Lovely. What about my dad? You might think, what about my child? What about my friend who has been suffering in a really dark time right now and there's no sign that it's stopping? Why isn't God saving them the way he saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If you're wrestling with those questions, I'm really sorry. I can relate to that. But I want us to see that in the midst of our wrestling, know that God and his word do not make light of your suffering. In between these stories of triumph, which are beautiful, 
the Bible is filled with stories of hardship and of suffering. Now, one of the reasons we know that the Bible is not a fairy tale is it's not just full of happy endings and tidy stories. There's a lot of mess. And not everyone gets a happy ending. In fact, that's not even true for these three men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, after the story with its beautiful conclusion, are still captives who were taken from their homeland. In fact, these aren't even their real names. Originally, these three men had beautiful Hebrew names that praised the God of Israel. So that they would fit better into Babylon, those names were stripped from them, and they were given names that praised Babylonian gods. And as far as we know, these men, eventually, they grow old and they die in captivity. But throughout their captivity, they know, they serve a God who is strong enough to save them and who is strong enough to keep them in a foreign land where they can glorify God where they are. Now, that can be a really startling thought. Wait, God keeps people in places of suffering for his glory? He keeps us in places of suffering. How is that fair? In fact, if we can feel bitter to that, we can wonder, why doesn't God equal the standards? Why doesn't he take some of his own medicine? But the truth is that he did. You see, God has always sought to share life with his people. God never leaves you alone in places of suffering. He is right there with you. In fact, he wants a life with us so much that he sent his son who came down as a human and lived right beside us. And God, Jesus did not come down as a nobleman in a palace. He came down as a tradesman, as a wandering teacher who was often homeless. He was likely rejected by a lot of people because of that. And he spent time with people. He came to the blind, the lame, the poor, those who were accused of being criminals, and even those who were dead, and he delivered them. Then he faced his own suffering. Jesus was fully aware that he would face death on a cross to pay for our sins and close the gap between the Father and us. And he saw this awful fate before him. And Jesus looked at God and he said, please don't do this. Please find another way. But not my will, yours be done. And then Jesus suffered. He went through torture, and then he suffered on a cross. And then he faced the thing that all of us fear the most, the anger and the judgment of God. And he took all of it in such a painful way that he ends up crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. Why did he do this? Because he knew, knew that by living with us and taking on our sin, taking all of our shame, all of the suffering, he paid the penalty for every act of rebellion against God. More than that, he knew that death and suffering, they're not the end. On the third day, he rose again. And he rose with true power, not only over earthly kings, but over death itself. So when I wonder... What about my dad? I can rest assured 
death isn't the end. We serve the God who defeated death and who also defeats suffering. Jesus has paid the price and opens the way for us to share not only in this life, but in the next life, in fellowship with the powerful God who loves and pursues us. So I do want to share, if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus or doesn't have a relationship with him, I would like to ask, would, would you meet with him today? Um, he already knows you. He knows how you've suffered, how people have used power against you. He also is aware of the times that we use and misuse power against others. And yet he loves you exactly as you are right now. Um, if you don't know him, would you accept that he has already paid the price for anything you've done? In order to talk to him, you don't have to do something. He actually did it for you so that you could just come and talk to him. So he's covered that price and he still seeks to deliver people just as he's been doing through all of history. Now, if you're here and you know Jesus and you have a relationship with him, but you feel overpowered by a circumstance in life, something's just on your mind every day, would you give that to God? He is, he's the one who has the power and he has more power than we have. I know I tend to, if I'm facing something big, I wanna handle it in my own strength. I wanna make the multi-step plan and overcome it. And some things just don't work that way. So I would invite, if there's something like that in your life right now, would you take this moment to give that to the God who is powerfully present in your life, who loves you and wants you to trust that to him? I'm gonna be silent for about 30 seconds. And if something has come to your mind or to your heart, I ask that you would just bow your head and entrust that to God at this time. our powerful God of grace. Please show that you're present, that you love us, and that even in the midst of suffering, you are not leaving us alone. Take these burdens that are coming to our minds and our hearts and carry them for us. Please carry us as well. We need you and we love you and we ask that you would help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.